Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, well, this month and last month, I was and am still exploring the films of Reed Morano, as recommended by Sean Meehan, and in this week's episode, I'll be talking about her 2018 film, I Think We're Alone Now. First and foremost, apologies for kind of the gaps in the scheduling and the publishing of these episodes. Um, it's been a little bit of a crazy time in February, crazier than I anticipated it being, and so um, this podcast has been delayed. The cast of Cthulhu has been delayed because of many factors, so apologize uh, for those delays. I hope that uh, you've at least been enjoying what I've been uh, trying to populate on the Facebook page, which has mostly just been articles gushing over Bong Joon-ho and um, things relevant to him and the Oscar wins for Parasite. So hopefully you've been enjoying that, and hopefully you've been um, at least keeping up with what I've been doing and haven't been uh, lying awake at night wondering when the next episode of I Do Movies Badly will be posted. Um, here is this one. Next week, finishing up the month, I will be posting the bonus episode, as I talked about, about um, the rhythm section. And then we'll be, once again, taking a hiatus for March as I prepare um, for my upcoming nuptials and just um, freeing up some uh, time and mental uh, energy just to to kind of ready myself for that and to kind of take care of anything that needs to be taken care of um, leading up to that. And then, of course, back in April with a new guest and a new theme. So um, I think we're alone now. I'll be honest, I was a little bit nervous about revisiting this one because um, I liked it so much the first time I saw it, and hopefully you've uh, had a minute to kind of revisit and reread the review that I uh, wrote for it back when it came out in 2018. Uh, looking back at my top 10 of 2018, it was number 6 on my uh, on my top 10, um, and watching it again now, I have to say I think I liked it even more the second time, and, and wondering if it even would uh, jump up a few spots in my top 10 ranking, maybe uh, swapping it with uh, First Reformed as number 5, but that's that's neither here nor there. The important thing is just I, I was thrilled that I liked it even more uh, the second time that I liked it uh, than I did the first time, and I think that has a lot to do with talking with Sean about Reed Morano as a filmmaker and just um, revisiting, or, or, well, I guess for all these films so far, with the exception of this one, visiting her work and just kind of looking what she brings uh, to a film as a director and as a DP um, are both at the same time. Um, there are uh, some problems with this with the script uh, from for I think we're alone now, which was certainly one of the things that I, I remember from the first time where I think it, uh, it it's phenomenal for I'd say 85, 90 percent of the film and then, Near the end, it doesn't really kind of stick the landing for many, for not many reasons, but for a few reasons, which I'll get to uh, a little bit later. But um, I really think uh, if it were, I don't want to say if it weren't for that, it's not as though the script is bad, but um, if the script was, uh, you know, I even want to think a little bit longer or if it, if it just kind of uh, 
really was able to wrap up uh, the film with a thrilling conclusion, I think it, it would have been p- perhaps been even higher on, on my top 10 list. Um, but what's, what is fascinating to me is that um, even with that, um, Murano's direction elevates the script or, or elevates the film at least to become uh, more than the sum of its parts. Uh, it's funny, I can't imagine that the screenplay for this film is very long because there's not um, a whole lot of dialogue. Uh, in it. I mean, in fact... Um, the first spoken words don't even come until, I think, 13, 13 and a half minutes into this film. Um, so for 13, 13 and a half minutes, we're just kind of sitting in silence with our characters, or I should say specifically more character, because um, it's around that time that Grace, the character played by Elle Fanning, is introduced into the story and into our lives and the lives of Dell, life of Dell. sorry about that. And yet, even with that approach, even with this silence, even with just kind of only relying on visuals and images to tell the story, we have such a clear idea of who Dell is, of what this world is like, and sort of what he wants, or not even what he wants, but how he views himself in this world, strictly because of how Murano uses a term that that Sean likes to use, film grammar um it's it's wonderful to kind of uh set a an emotional tone and a a, an expectation and a reality of this main character and of this world just by the way that Murano uses the camera it's absolutely fascinating um and what I mean by that is or or the sort of things that I picked up on was a, a few things a few kind of visual cues or techniques that she uses to kind of indicate to us those things. This is who Dell is, this is what he wants, and this is how he views himself within this world. For one thing, he's mostly framed in the center of, well, the frame. He's, he's mostly center in, in kind of any screen, or, he's, he's, uh, or if he's partaking in action, it's typically done in a way that is kind of considered safe and and not it and I don't mean emotionally safe but I, I kind of mean more psychologically there's a lot of things that just because of what we've typically seen time and time again um, there's a there's almost a few expectations that we mostly are I'd say unaware of when we come into a film in, in terms of some uh, shooting in terms of editing in terms of how the structure of a film plays out in terms of uh, character roles and archetypes. These are neither good nor bad, but just um, film art, uh, for the most part, kind of has a lot of um, status quo elements. And, and I don't say that in a pejorative sense. I don't say that in a, in a good or bad sense, but um, there are sort of some, some rules, um, and I'm, I'm putting air quotes around rules, or, or certain things that we sort of expect to see in a film and it's kind of good to know those things because then when a filmmaker breaks those conventions or breaks those rules purposely, um, they can be used to great effect um, to kind of not even push back against uh, kind of the status quo, but just in order to, to know the rules and to bend the rules to, to, your, to tell the story that you're trying to tell, basically. Um, and, and so what I mean by... Dell is often kind of shot in a safe way. What I'm talking about is that sort of um, when it comes to conventional shooting or sort of um, filming things in a language that we understand and that kind of makes sense to us is, um, you know, you kind of have this idea of uh, if he's not centered, 
if Dell is not centered, then you kind of want him to the right of the screen. If he's going to be off centered, you kind of want him to the right of the screen. And that just comes down to, and this is a very American and Westernized way of, of, of explaining this, but the eye for the most part kind of looks at things left to right. When you read, you, you, you follow the page left to right. And when you're looking at a, a, a screen, a lot of times subconsciously, you're looking left to right to kind of take in the world to kind of scan the frame and sort of recognize what is kind of going on. And if you think about it, by putting him in like the right-hand side of the screen, it's almost sort of the period on, on an end of his sentence, if you will. If you kind of think of um, the rest of the frame kind of being the text and having the character on the right side of the screen is sort of the period on the end of that text, basically. This is what I mean by safe. It might be easier to kind of say conventional. And once again, I don't say that in a pejorative sense or, or in a derogatory sense. And the same thing goes like when a character is in motion or moving, it makes a lot more sense to, or, or, or we are more comfortable with and more familiar with having the character move from the left of the screen to the right of the screen. Because that's, once again, how our eye goes. That's kind of how we're expecting things to kind of um, move in, in that direction, basically. So Dell, first and foremost, a lot of times he's centered in the frame, which is just kind of a very simplistic way of kind of telling us that he is the center of his world. He is the main focus. He is the only person that is important in this world. And yet when there's movement, he's moving left to right, or if he is off-center, then he's kind of on the right-hand side of the screen. He is doing things in a conventional way. This is his world. This is him surrounding himself in safety. Even though this is a world in which in, it seems as though the, you know, the rest of the population has been wiped out by some mysterious plague or virus, he feels safe. This is his... This is him in his comfort zone, basically. Um, Murano accents that by shooting a lot of his stuff with a wide-angle lens, with almost kind of a fisheye lens, which kind of not just makes him seem bigger in the frame, but also slightly blurs the edges of the frame, and not necessarily everything that's immediately around him, but just if you kind of look at a lot of his scenes or a lot of the shots in which it's just kind of Peter Dinklage-centered, um, on the edges of the frame, there's kind of a slight blur to everything. It's not dramatic, it's not drastic, but it does subtly imply to the viewer that, yes, nothing else matters on the outside of Dell's world. He is only focused on himself, he's only focused on the here and now, on him and on what he's doing. And so this is the film grammar that Murano uses to kind of indicate to us, despite the fact that we're not hearing any dialogue for 13 or 13 and a half minutes, we know a whole lot about him. We know a whole lot about what he feels about himself and about his role in this world. It is absolutely fantastic. It's it shows such skill uh, and such like finely tuned technique from a a director and a director who knows exactly how she is going to shoot her film and how she's going to capture everything which is in, within her world. And so. It's interesting because, it, you know, here's this guy who is in this seemingly post-apocalyptic world and his day-in-day-out routine seems to be cleaning out the houses of the, the, the people in his neighborhood, actually cleaning out the bodies, cleaning up um, the furniture, taking the batteries, and just kind of bringing some type of um, 
seemingly order to this world, and you kind of wonder why. I mean, it's only him. He's the only person around here. He doesn't have to have any consideration for anyone else. He can do whatever he wants, and what he chooses to do, what he opts to do day in and day out, is to clean up this town in which he lives, is to, sure, um, take some time off to read. He fishes for his food. He enjoys a glass of wine. He watches old movies. Um, But his, you know, nine-to-five routine is to clean up this town. And why does he do that? Well, he he explains to us why he does it after Grace eventually shows up and he says, you know, it's entropy. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with entropy, not to say that I am, but I do have a printed out definition, um, or at least a definition of what the internet tells me that entropy is. Um, when it comes to physics, it's uh, primarily defined as a thermodynamic quantity representing the unavailability of a system's thermal energy for conversion into mechanical work often interpreted as the degree of disorder or randomness in the system. That might, 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 that might not make a whole lot of sense to you until we get to the second definition. Lack of order or predictability, gradual decline into disorder. So why does Dell do the things he does day in and day out? Because he's bringing some semblance of order to a seemingly chaotic universe. And that goes without... I don't want to say that goes without saying, but that's something that just, I'm being implied in the sense of it seems as though the entire town's population, for all we know and for all he knows, the entire world's population has been entirely wiped out and he is the sole survivor. That's chaos. That's chaotic. There, there's, you know, governments have been dissolved. Um, you know, emergency services are you can no longer be relied upon. Who knows what, what you know, you know about plumbing or electricity or that, you know, the, these... All these systems, all these systematic um, institutions and all these daily routines that we have set up for ourselves to kind of provide a routine in order to a world, those are all gone now. And so Dell does these things, he does this routine, he has this thing he does every single day to fight off entropy, to bring some type of semblance of order and routine to his universe and as far as he knows as far as he cares he is the only one in that universe so to bring order and routine to the universe around him he is bringing order and routine to his life he is fighting off chaos but then what happens grace shows up and the film grammar changes. She is chaos, and not in a drastic way. It's not as though she shows up and she's a um, a crazy sex-starved drunkard who listens to speed metal and just wants to kind of destroy things, but it's just the mere existence of someone else within this world, within his world, within his universe, is chaotic because it's different. It's throwing off the order and it's throwing off the routine that he is used to and that after 13 minutes, we are used to. Um, And it's fascinating to me. It's absolutely fascinating to me. Once again, we spend 13, 13 and a half minutes establishing this film grammar strictly through visuals. And then all of a sudden, there is a second person here. And the film grammar changes entirely. But it doesn't change dramatically and it doesn't change drastically. But having established the rules of this universe through visuals, seeing how the visuals change even in a subtle way indicates a huge emotional shift in Dell's world and in the world that we are watching. 
So how does that happen? How does Murano use, once again, her skill with a camera to indicate that Grace is chaos and all of a sudden Dell's world is thrown into some type of disorder? Well, the framing and blocking, now instead of just accommodating one person, instead of being able to actually have the symmetry to feature one person centered, it now has to accommodate two people that immediately and just kind of um, most... Uh, well, most immediately and sort of most noticeably throws off the balance in the scene or, or throws off the balance in a shot, throws off the balance in the framing. Um, Grace sometimes appears like an invader in certain shots. There's um, a brief sequence shortly after she shows up in which Dell is out in the lake fishing for uh, lunch or dinner, and there's a very wide shot of him on the lake, and he's kind of... If I remember correctly, his boat or he and his boat are kind of very far off in the distance in the center of the frame, and she walks on from the right side of the screen. And it, it just kind of feels like she's, you know, here's this perfectly balanced, centered shot, and here she comes kind of tipping the balance of the right-hand side. And thinking about what I said earlier about how there are safe shots and how movement, you know, often kind of we're more comfortable with it when it comes from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. She enters from the right side of the screen. She's walking from right to left instead of from left to right. She is throwing off the balance of this world. There's also a scene where um, I think I, I think it might be the first time that she kind of goes out with him to kind of look around at, at houses and kind of what he does. And they're walking towards the camera or, or the camera's kind of moving back and they're walking forward like kind of towards us. And he is in the center of the frame and kind of in focus. And she's slightly behind him and yet off to the side and out of focus. It once again keys us into what Dell is thinking about her in the sense of like he's not. Or at least in his mind, she is not as important as he is. He is the center of this world and here is this foreign invader basically. By putting her behind him, and putting her out of focus, we are tuned in once again to what Dell thinks about this new person. Um, what's interesting about their relationship and about how the film grammar changes to reflect their relationship, I think you can see it, <coughs> excuse me, almost entirely uh, reflected effectively in the dinnertime sequences. And it's these dinnertime sequences in which, um, you know, we're, we first see Dell kind of eating um, at golden hour uh, in front of these windows, which kind of overlook, uh, overlooks uh, the lake and the mountains. And we have this wonderful, just gorgeous, um, you know, collage of color as the sun is going down and he's silhouetted. And when we first see it, it's just so beautiful and it seems so peaceful. And yet shortly after Grace arrives, well, now there are two people. And as I said, uh, you know, when they are, not only does the camera have to accommodate two people, but now the editing has to accommodate two people as well. The shooting and the way that the shots are placed together next to each other, that has to accommodate now conversations between two people. We now have editing is becomes more of a factor in the film after she arrives. And... Uh, one thing that I find very fascinating, which sort of typifies this, is how these scenes, uh, how they're blocked and how they're framed and how they're shot and how that changes as their relationship gets more 
comfortable as they open up to each other. For instance, first the very first time that they are eating together, I'm going to um, put two screenshots, and by screenshots I mean I just pulled out my phone and I took a picture of the TV as I was watching the film, um, two screenshots of uh, a shot reverse shot of the two of them eating together and talking together for the first time. And what's fascinating is how when you have a, typically when you have a shot reverse shot, um, you want, and once again, this is sort of the conventional wisdom, the, the quote unquote safe way of um, filming a conversation, editing it together. You kind of want the framing or, or the, the characters to visually balance each other out. For instance, if your first shot is someone who's on the left side of the screen looking off to the right, then when you cut to the person they're talking to, you're expecting, based on their eyeline and based on how they're framed, that second person to be based or to be stationed on the right side of the screen looking left. So if you would put those two shots, you know, next to each other, you would have two people looking at each other, you know, and, and, and kind of having this border of people on on the left and the right hand side and in the middle is sort of this empty space or or this uh um negative space where their eyes are connecting with each other when they are first eating together Dell and Grace we have a shot of Dell in a quote unquote safe framing he is off to the right hand side of the screen and you know his conversation you have to imagine if he was choosing to look at her his eyeline would be looking left off, you know, to the, to the left side of the screen. And then when we cut to Grace, we have an imbalanced shot because we don't have Grace on the left side of the screen looking at him. We have Grace on the right side of the screen looking off to the right side of the, or, or looking camera right, basically. This throws us off. This throws off our expectations of how a scene should be cut together. It throws off our expectations of how a character is typically uh, positioned in a frame and it may not be a, a, a strange angle in the sense of like, you know, it might not be a, a Dutch angle or the camera shooting from, you know, far down below looking up or far above looking down on them. But it does sit with us subconsciously and subtly is like our, our, our brain is kind of saying this is this is weird. I, I can't explain why this is weird. I can't explain why this is off, but this is off. And that's because this idea of, of the grammar of, of cinema that has been kind of... Um, uh, that we've been kind of raised on, that we are so used to seeing through a lot of times uh, American film and American TV kind of have a very standard way of shooting, we're used to that. And once again, I want to emphasize that's neither a good nor a bad thing, that's just kind of how it is. And a filmmaker who can recognize that and then can break those rules uh, purposely um, to emphasize something, um, that can be a, a quite an evocative thing. And here we have that. We have Murano breaking that rule of kind of how a, a, a conversation is typically staged, is typically shot, is typically edited together. Um, and we see that there is something off and imbalanced with this, you know, initial conversation. Once again, emphasizing this is what Dell feels about this person, that this person has thrown off his balance, that this person is chaos, that this person has thrown off his routine. As their relationship develops, we still get shot reverse shot in conversation, but it becomes more balanced. We have one person on one side of the screen and then cut to the other person and they are balanced on the other side of the screen. So we, we have this subtle idea of things are kind of becoming a little bit more equal. And then eventually we get to a point 
where they are conversing with each other and situated together in the same frame. We don't have to do a shot reverse shot because they are together, they are one, they are kind of balancing this world with each other. Um, there is an equality there, there is a peace there, um, if nothing else because the conversation is not being broken up by editing. We can just sit there with these two people as they talk. They are equals with each other. It indicates once again that Dell is much more calm and at peace with her there. It's a wonderful transition, and it's one that you can notice if you pay attention to it, if you're really kind of keen to it, which I think I was able to do because this is my second time watching it, but it's not one that really draws a lot of attention to itself, and yet it is evocative, and it's effective, and it's absolutely wonderful. One other thing that I, I realized I, I should have talked about a little bit before I got to how things transition, but... Um, one other thing that Marana works in here after Grace shows up to kind of further indicate how things are are a bit off in Dell's world is this idea that we've seen in Meadowland, that we've seen in the Skeleton Twins, of uh, sun coming through the windows in such a way where it almost seems like it's burning, where it's a bit, it's incredibly bright. And it's quite oversaturated to a certain degree when everything else in the in the frame or in the sequence or in the scene, including the characters and, and the and everything else kind of seems like it's lit very evenly and naturally. We have these windows often covered in curtains because we kind of have to do that in order for the frame to be not entirely blown out. But um, we have the light coming in inside from outside and it just looks so bright that it seems like if these characters stay in for it too long, they will be burned. We saw that in the Skeleton Twins, we saw that in Metal Land, and in here, we see it again, but we don't really see it until after Grace is in the picture, because a lot of times we see Dell, we do have that naturalistic lighting, we do have the lighting where it seems like, well, of course, uh, there's not a whole, there's no electricity, so of course, uh, you know, if he's not close to windows, it's going to be dark, and when he's outside, everything is kind of very evenly lit, um, and then when Grace comes into the picture, where we see, we start to see images and scenes in which the light coming from outside seems like it's going to burn and it just further indicates to me that there are things that are going wrong that things are different from how they used to be um when violet and uh, and patrick show up as played by Charles Gain charlotte gainsborough and um why am i blanking on uh his name right now uh but when they show up um the lensing uh and by that I mean how, how Murano um, shoots the scenes, again, um, changes again in a way which is a bit more drastic, in a way that does kind of draw attention to itself. Think of the the breakfast time conversation uh, when Paul Giamatti, that's his name, good God, Paul Giamatti, <laughs> sorry, when Charlotte Gainsborough plays Violet and Paul Giamatti plays um, Patrick, but when they show up, things start to get strange. Things start to get almost surreal, if you will. Um, think of the breakfast conversation in which Dell shows up and he is just fucking flabbergasted that not just that there are two more people alive in this world, but that also these two people seem to be, well, not just seem to be, but are connected to Grace. It seems like they are her mother and father, even though, according to her story, her father died when he was on the toilet. Pause, let me step back, because there's one other thing that I forgot to mention um, when it comes to visually indicating how their relationship changes. 
if you read my review of uh, I Think We're Alone Now, the screenshot uh, or the, the still frame that the blog generates, and that was included in the blog, is a great snapshot of sort of an ultimate kind of climax and culmination in how the relationship being depicted is one that makes Dell incredibly uncomfortable. So I talked about how their dinnertime conversations are, are shot and edited together in such a way where you can subtly see how emotionally they are transitioning from being strangers to being more comfortable with each other. The screenshot from the review that is on the Facebook page that you can go see now um, is a sequence in which Grace is drunk and is getting a bit too close to Dell physically and emotionally, and you can see them both silhouetted against kind of an orange uh, glow from outside, and he's kind of leaning back because he kind of wants to get away from her, and she is leaning in. And the way that those two are positioned with each other is not combative, but you you feel that it's invasive to Dell. Because once again, it's the two of them together on screen at the same time, so we have that subtle um, implication of she is within his personal space. Then we also see that she is so very close to him that he is physically reeling back because he wants to get physically away from her, but he also doesn't want to get involved or he doesn't want to hear how truthful she's being. Because at that moment, she's talking about how everyone that she knows is dead. That here is a guy who is happy to be alone, that here is a guy who seemingly doesn't care that thousands of people in his little town are now dead. He's at peace with that. And she is basically telling him, fuck you, everyone that I loved is dead. And they dead, they, they died in sometimes horrible ways. She had had sex with someone, and he died shortly after. Her dad was on the toilet, and he died that way. And there is a truth that she is spouting, an emotional truth, an emotional rawness, and he is made very uncomfortable by that. You see that not only by how he is physically retracting from her, but also how the scene is lit, because the light that is coming in through the windows is a bright orange, almost as though it's fire, almost as though it's burning him. He is, re he is reeling from her just as he would be reeling from fire. He doesn't want to be near that. He doesn't want anything to do with that. He doesn't want to touch it just like he wouldn't want to touch fire. It's a fantastic scene, I think. But anyway, so when Violet and Patrick show up and there's this breakfast conversation and everyone is just kind of, well, by everyone, Dell and Grace are, are, are stunned and feeling very awkward and Patrick and Violet are kind of carrying on as though this is just another breakfast anywhere. Pay special attention to how the camera is filming Dell. I talked earlier about wide lenses uh, shooting Dell earlier on, how it sort of blurs the edges around him. The wide-angle lenses being used in Dell's close-ups are so fisheye, are so wide, that if you look behind him at a doorframe, the doorframe is actually bending around him. The doorframe is actually rounded. The straight edges are being rounded because of how wide of a lens she is using to shoot the scene. Dell is visibly very shocked and surprised by the arrival of these two people. Um, not just the fact that 
um, these people seem to be um, Grace's parents, but also by the fact that it, you know, he just took for granted that, that he was alone. And according to Patrick, no, uh, there are thousands of people alive and we actually have a, a community and everything is fine. We play golf. It's a thing. You see the frame bend around him because it's indicating to us how surreal and how disorienting this truth is. We see it on Peter Dinklage's face, and we see it how the world around him is literally bending. Once again, it's a fantastic and subtle way of kind of indicating things in Dell's world are now changing, are now strange, are now surreal. This, of course, leads to Grace and Patrick and Violet leaving, and then Dell eventually um, coming to the conclusion that he needs to go back and get her, and the revelation that, um, well, it's not so much a revelation. Well, here's the thing. Now I can talk about how the ending is fumbled a bit, because the truth that we are told, or the reality of this world, is that um, there's a, a people, a community of thousands of people living in Palm Springs, Everyone there is very happy, and there are some type of experiments being done to kind of strip uh, negative emotions away from people. So, uh, Patrick is a, a I, I think it's implied that he is a doctor, but if not, you know, there, there's they have the best doctors known to man there, which, listen, if there's actually um, a, a significant portion of the world's population being wiped out by this virus or plague, then... Um, Claiming that you have the best doctors known to man is not exactly the highest of honors to bestow upon these people, but it seems like they're doing some type of experiments. That's the subtext that there are experiments being done to strip people of negative emotions so they don't have to remember what happened, that those images and those memories that Grace has of her father dying on the toilet, of the guy that she had sex with kind of dying almost immediately after, she doesn't have to live with them. And Dell, having um, come around to the fact that he, you know, does care for her, uh, makes the long trek from the Hudson River Valley out to Palm Springs uh, to get her. And thematically, it makes sense to me because we have this character who's brought some type of order to his life because he's trying to fight off empathy. That's how he was when we when we met him. And yet this character is introduced, this other person is introduced that is seemingly chaos to him. Not just because it throws off his routine, not just because it throws off his understanding and belief about the world, but also because emotions can be chaotic. In the sense of introducing emotion can sometimes make things unpredictable. Uh, in a relationship... In within yourself, when all you have to deal with is you, um, you can more easily develop a routine, you can more easily develop an order, you can more easily develop an understanding of your universe. And when you bring another person into that, there's unpredictability. Because even if you know someone through and through, there's going to be bad days, there's going to be good days, there's going to be things you did anticipate, there's going to be things you didn't anticipate. You can no longer have a 100% predictable order and routine. And so Dell has become a character that has moved from embracing order to kind of embracing what chaos can bring 
in how it can enrich your life and how this introduction of another person, how this introduction of emotion can bring a more fulfilling life. And the idea that stripping memories of even bad things, even something as simple or, or even something as seemingly black and white as bad memories, even by doing that, you are manufacturing an order which doesn't naturally exist. Thematically, I get it. That makes sense. But the execution seems a bit rushed because, listen, I love um, stories which kind of have genre uh, or, or, you know, sci-fi elements kind of on the periphery of a story. Um, Another Earth was a film that did that very well, I think, in which it was, um, you know, hey, there was this actual fact that another Earth appeared and people are trying to figure that out. But that was just kind of used as an excuse to explore the emotions and the intimate relationships of, of people as to well, what would this cause people to think and do. So if you're going to have a, a community where experiments are going on to uh, manipulate people's emotions, that's fine. I can buy into that. But there has to be some type of seed planted early on. There has to be some type of hints that that way when... Patrick and Violet show up, we're thinking, oh, that's what that was, not what the fuck is going on here. And now I know that that might seem a bit contradictory or hypocritical considering um, I've been talking about a film which um, its entire visual hypothesis is dedicating to indicating how dramatic changes are coming about our main character's life. But it almost has a feel like something was thrown on at the last minute or uh, there was some type of idea of like, listen, we need some type of resolution, so we have to invent something or maybe we can't just make a film with two characters, even though you can because All is Lost is a film with just one character and it's phenomenal, but All is Lost also had an external threat and having just two people who have kind of internal threats, then it makes it a little bit more difficult. I, I, I don't want to get into that too much, other than to say that um, the ending does feel a bit, not even tacked on, but it doesn't seem like it sticks the landing. Once again, thematically it makes sense, but by introducing something which is so dramatic and such a emotional, dramatic emotional change for the characters when that hinges around some type of external threat or element, I, I feel like the seed needs to be planted sooner, so that way this isn't so much a twist as much as a reveal, which are two different things. But it does feel a bit anticlimactic, but at the same time, I don't think that having a happy ending is dishonest. In fact, I think it's in, incredibly honest and actually in line with how we see these characters develop and which, with how we see the emotion changing and the characters changing throughout the film as wonderfully um, and evocatively indicated by Murano as the director and the DP. Um, if you are curious to rewatch. Um, I think we're alone now, and to kind of follow along with some of the things that I've been noticing and pointing out, it's uh, available for rental or purchase on um, iTunes. 
on Amazon, on YouTube, on Google Play, on Vudu, and in the Microsoft Store. So that does it for I think we're alone now. If you have any agreements or disagreements or want to get touch with in touch with me for anything, whether it be Raid Murano Month or anything else, it's easy enough to do so at emailing me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com. Or you can reach me on Twitter at Nolan Fixes Teeth. You can catch up on back episodes of I Do Movies Badly at idomoviesbadly.podbean.com or go to battleshipretention.com and find I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop-down menu. Um, but that's basically it. So be sure to tune in next week where I will be wrapping up Reed Morano. I'll be wrapping up February and January with um, her latest directorial feature, uh, the rhythm section, and where I'll be taking a little bit of a hiatus um, to get married and to take care of things with that, and we'll, hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.